Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Age of Jackson podcast, a podcast about Annabellum America, hosted by Daniel Galata. Each episode, Daniel and a guest expert will unpack how the people and events of the early United States shaped their world and ours. To stay connected and up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite listening app. You can also follow the Age of Jackson podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. If you enjoy listening and learning about early American history, leave a review. And now, here's your host, Daniel Galata. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to the Age of Jackson podcast. When the United States emerged as a world power in the years before the Civil War, the man who presided over the nation's triumphant territorial and economic expansion were largely southern slaveholders. As presidents, cabinet officers, and diplomats, slaveholding leaders controlled the main levers of foreign policy inside an increasingly powerful American state. For pro-slavery leaders like John C. Calhoun and Jefferson Davies, the 19th century was a world torn between two hostile forces, a rising movement against bondage, and an Atlantic plantation system that was larger and more productive than ever before. In this great struggle, southern statesmen saw the United States as slavery's most powerful champion. Overcoming traditional qualms about a strong central government, slaveholding leaders harassed the power of the state to defend slavery aboard. During the antebellum years, they worked energetically to modernize the U.S. military while steering American diplomacy to protect slavery in Brazil, Cuba, and the Republic of Texas. According to Matthew Karp, my guest today, these leaders were not separatists, but actually nationalists. Their vast Seven Empire was not an independent South, but the entire United States, and only the election of Abraham Lincoln broke their grip on national power. Fortified by years at the helm of U.S. foreign policy, slaveholding elites formed their own confederacy, not as a desperate effort to preserve their property, but to contend for a bid to shape the future of the Atlantic world. To unpack this fascinating relationship between slavery and American foreign policy is Matthew Karp. Matthew Karp is an assistant professor of history at Princeton University and is an historian of the U.S. Civil War era and its relationship to the 19th century. He received his PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania in 2011 and joined the faculty at Princeton in 2013. His first book is This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, which was published with Harvard University Press and is available as an audiobook with audible.com. It has won several awards, and he is now working on a book about the emergence of anti-slavery mass politics in the United States. You can also follow him on Twitter, 
at CarpMJ. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to the Age of Jackson podcast, Dr. Carp. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your exciting book. I, I, I've been promoting it on Twitter in our very first giveaway, which I'll be excited to announce after this episode has launched. But I really got to say that I really enjoyed your book. I appreciate that. And it, it's nice that you're giving it away. I hope uh, also you're encouraging people to buy it because that benefits me more. <laughs> of course. Um, now, I'm always interested to learn about the origins of research projects. So tell me, where did this vast southern empire come from? What's its origin story? Yeah, it, it goes a long way back. Uh, I joke that, you know, I've spent, I somehow made the decision when I was, you know, what, in my early 20s to spend a dozen years of my life with John C. Calhoun and Jefferson Davis. And uh, it's amazing I don't hate myself more than I do. Uh, it's It's been a long time coming. I, In some ways, the... My interest in thinking about this period of American history in the kind of way that the book approaches is it pro- approaches it in international terms, thinking about the question of slavery and American foreign policy, goes all the way back to uh, studying abroad in England uh, as a junior and a course on British foreign policy that I took, um, in which you know the, the professor just kind of offhandedly mentioned you know that. Mexico had offered Great Britain uh, a stake in California if Britain had intervened during uh, the U.S.-Mexico war. And just sort of a toss-off comment because 90% of the course was on European, you know, questions. But it made me just think about, you know, the idea of a balance of power in uh, the Western Hemisphere and the North American continent in general uh, and and how much was unsettled in the early 19th century. You know, we it's very easy to sort of trace the narrative of American supremacy, but how many other forces were in play uh, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s? Then coming to, so I ended up writing my undergrad thesis on the annexation of Texas and how Southerners and Northerners and and British, particularly uh, diplomats uh, uh, and Mexicans, also uh, sort of uh, negotiated that, uh, that question. And coming to grad school, working with Steve Hahn and Stephanie McCurry, uh, in uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, who were really focused on slavery in the South, I was interested in the same questions, and I began to see how fundamental slavery was across this whole period, and how no history of the kind of balance of power struggles in the in the Western Hemisphere uh, really had to center slavery, uh, and and that was the kind of the the germ of the project, uh, growing out from Texas and uh, encompassing in some ways the whole the whole hemisphere. Uh, by the time I was done, that's one of the interesting things I find about your book that it's so outwardly focused. Because when people talk about slavery in the United States, they're typically talking in terms of North or South, or at least even just the Southern experience itself. But your book is way more international. So what do you think you're adding to the conversation? What do you think scholars have missed that your book is trying to get in there? In some sense, it's a, I guess there, 
two major, I think, uh, contributions that this international perspective allows us. For one, it puts the story of American slavery, the politics of, uh, you know, the sectional crisis, you know, which we, uh, it's a term we often use, we could talk about sectionalism later, between the North and the South, the road to the Civil War. A lot of these questions that have traditionally been, I mean, for, with good reason, and I don't mean to slight earlier, you know, kind of preoccupations of the scholarship, it is a civil war. It took place within the United States. Um, this conflict over slavery emerged within American politics. Actually, my next project is very domestic. So it's not about um, you know uh, slighting that kind of perspective, but uh, that conflict over slavery took place, of course, in a, in a much larger 19th century struggle about the future of slavery, about uh, the possibility of slave abolition, emancipation all across the Western world. Um, that you know certainly if, if it began in some ways with the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, British emancipation in uh, 1833. By the mid 19th century, the question of American slavery was absolutely bound up with the question of slavery in Brazil and Cuba and other places. And so, in some sense, the most the the, the most basic intervention the book makes is kind of pointing out that a lot of these Southern politicians who were disproportionately in charge of the American state knew about this and cared about it and thought that British abolition was, you know, fundamental in terms of restructuring the balance of power in in uh, in the Western world, um, saw the United States as the kind of champion of, of slavery in this hemisphere, were interested in connections not only with, um, you know, just filibustering expeditions in the Caribbean, but diplomatic connections with places like Brazil, um, were attuned to the ebb and flow of anti-slavery politics in Europe and so on. So, that's the most basic thing. And the second thing I think is when you when you kind of acknowledge the way that how important these international con concerns were to Southerners, the story of the road to the Civil War itself changes. Slaveholders appear less as kind of defensive, um, def you know, kind of protectors of uh, local, regional or sectional uh, rights or uh, the kind of uh, defenders of a, of a kind of stagnant slaveholding society, but but emerges much more confident, aggressive figures who, you know, both in their thoughts about the, the future of slavery in the modern world, you know, which encompassed a lot of a wide ranging sense of the future of European colonialism and racial theory and so on, but also in their actions, uh, in their um, uh, the way that they manipulated and kind of uh, understood the, the power of the United States government uh, in military policy in foreign policy. It, it, it makes uh, these pro-slavery statesmen like John C. Calhoun or Jefferson Davis uh, into kind of uh, far from sort of like traditionalist defenders of, a, of an established order. They were seeking to not just protect a world, but to build a world, to make a world uh, safe for slavery. And I think that uh, alters, you know, how we understand the Civil War itself, for sure. I want to get more into this nationalist and global thinking. What do you mean that they were nationalists to their core and not just sectionalists? And what does it mean to be a global thinker in the early 19th century on the question of slavery? One thing to remember, a, a, a sort of a, a elementary fact that in some ways the scholarship sort of had arrived at this point uh, for a while. Certainly contemporaries knew about it. Uh, Republicans in the 1850s talked about it all the time. Uh, just the Southern disproportionate Southern slaveholding control of the government. I mean, from the three-fifths clause, you know, granting uh, slave states extra seats in the Senate uh, to the, the power of the second party system, which I think was even more fundamental in terms of um, 
uh, you know, granting uh, Southern leaders a kind of uh, equal stake in the distribution of offices in Congress and in the in the executive branch, and often uh, more than more than a fifty percent share uh, in both the, the the Whig and the Democratic parties. But it, I think if you look at, I mean, one thing my book does is look specifically at questions of foreign and and naval and military policy and finds that slaveholders were even more disproportionately focused in uh, on those areas. Uh, and in that sense, I mean, I think one upshot of that is that uh, slavery itself was not, I mean, I guess technically it's, uh, and slaveholders would sometimes retreat to this when they were really threatened, but slavery itself wasn't simply sustained by state laws or by sort of local customs or um, the power of, of, of state rights. It was really sustained by the, the weight of the national government. You see that on a number of levels from the, you know, the role of the army in, in kind of, you know, clearing out Indians from Alabama and Mississippi in the War of 1812. Adam Rothman has written on this. Uh, Andrew Jackson himself was was heavily involved in that process, of course. But uh, but you also see it in in the way that these slaveholders wielded uh, the power of the U.S. government itself in terms of wanting to sus- not just protect that, sustain that power, but expand it to build a large navy that could protect the southern coast and to pro- and that could project U.S. power. Uh, abroad and kind of balance against the anti-slavery incursions of of Great Britain or or Haiti or some of the other anti-slavery forces in the region, that slavery didn't just require uh, sort of local protection, but it required national and even international power. Law and policy does play a large role in your book, particularly on the state and federal level. But In today's world, terms like states' rights, limited government, federal power can get very murky with present concerns and issues. So I was wondering if you could help our listeners contextualize this. Let's just say you're a typical plantation slaveholder. What does the role of the government look like to you? Or what should it look like to you in the early 19th century? What's your vision for government? Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of of, uh, asking that question. I think I think it depends, you know, in a lot of cases. I mean, one thing I mean, I think certainly I, I don't want to uh, the book tends to sort of homogenize slaveholders. And, and I could talk about why I do that. I think it's still important to see slaveholders as a class defined by uh, the ownership of human beings as slaves. And that in a certain sense, in a foreign policy sense, overrides many of these other divisions. But when you when you Drill down to the level of the individual planter. I mean, I think certainly it depends on where that planter is, or is that planter in the Mississippi Valley in you know West Tennessee, or on the frontier in Florida, or you know in the Carolina upcountry? Are they a Whig or they a Democrat? There's a lot of different ways that you know planters would have interpreted the powers and abilities of the of the U.S. government uh, based on their you know partisan. Uh, affiliation, uh, you know, the, how many slaves they had, what crop they were growing, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, for the purpose of this book, though, I think one way that as slaveholders, not every not every important you know pro-slavery politician uh, subscribed to this, but I think the the mainstream understood. I, I guess I, I would say uh, sort of had a political theory that sometimes they would express it even explicitly, but it was pretty much always implicitly present that the federal government did have limited powers. Uh, over uh, in domestic relations to some extent. I mean, they certainly did fear the the prospect of a uh, of a unfettered 
uh, federal, state, and domestic policy. Of course, they also wielded that power when it came to something like the Fugitive Slave Act to defend their slave property. But in general, they were very wary about expanding the role of uh, the power of Congress uh, at the expense of, of state governments where slavery was very secure. But uh, international questions on, on the questions of foreign policy, on the questions of the frontiers of the United States, on the question of the uh, the U.S. military, the U.S. Navy, uh, American foreign policy abroad in, in Europe and in Latin America. Um, slaveholders were very, uh, in general, were not only uh, not wary of, of the power of, of this kind of federal uh, government, but eager to embrace it. Uh, especially after that world in the 1830s and 1840s began to turn against slavery to some extent, uh, with uh, the prospect of Great Britain as an anti-slavery power really encouraged a lot of Southerners like Abel P. Upshur, the Secretary of the Navy under John Tyler, like John C. Calhoun as Secretary of State, um, ultimately like Davis as Secretary of War, to uh, strengthen the, the power of the United States, uh, which is a sort of, which, you know, in the context of world relations is uh, international relations, world politics, uh, is the strongest slaveholding power going. Uh, and in that sense, it's the national government isn't, to, isn't a, you know, a kind of um, a power to be feared, but a tool to be used. It occurred to me while reading your book, just how central a role John C. Calhoun plays in shaping it. And it struck me on a personal level because I was at Yale University the final year John C. John C. Calhoun College existed before it was replaced by Grace Murray Hooper College, which was an interesting transitional moment for me to be in. And I found myself reading your book wanting to know more about this guy. So in a nutshell... Who was Calhoun and what role did he play in shaping early American foreign policy? Yeah, he is. He's a fascinating figure. And, and maybe I can do this, see if this doesn't go too long. But I, I'll, I'll give you two Calhouns because there's Calhoun, the, the figure, as he's, I think, generally appears in both the scholarship and the popular imagination to the extent that he is a popular figure at all. And then there's the Calhoun in my book. So quickly, the first Calhoun, uh, well, they're both Calhouns, I think, are Anna, the Annabellum South's most important political leader, certainly from around the late 1820s, uh, not earlier in some sense, maybe even the 18 teens until uh, his death in 1850. But the first Calhoun is primarily notable for uh, his stalwart defense of Southern rights and state rights, uh, of course, slavery, um, after the nullification crisis in South Carolina, in which Calhoun defended in a series of articles South Carolina's right to nullify uh, federal laws uh, relating to the tariff. Uh, and of course, this brought him into conflict with the administration of Andrew Jackson, a kind of famous nationalist versus sectionalist showdown that kind of frames, I think, for a lot of in a lot of accounts, the the rest of the antebellum period, where the South is increasingly pulling away uh, from the nation into its kind of uh, defensive sectional crouch. Uh, and Calhoun is representative of this. You know, he wants to shut down the debate about slavery in, in the Senate with a gag rule. He speaks in defense of, of slavery and against uh, the, the possibility of compromise in, in 1850, in some sense. Talks about the chords of the Union snapping. He sort of, even though he dies 10 years before the Civil War, everything about his career from this perspective sort of points directly towards Southern secession. 
Um, so that's that's how he appears generally. In, in my book, I think he takes on a slightly different role. Of course, equally adamant, equally prominent in politics, equally adamant in defense of slavery. But he also appears as, uh, and I guess the first thing I should say also is a, as a political theorist, Calhoun's theory of the concurrent majority or the idea that the South should have a, as a minority region, should have a kind of veto over any legislation passed by a majority also fits this idea of him as a kind of defensive, ultimate conservative defender of minority rights, uh, sectional rights in a in a expanding union. But if you look at Calhoun in foreign policy and you trace his career across those same years, a, a slightly different narrative emerges. He's a strong defender of uh, for all of his state's rights commitments, a, a, a reliable and strong defender of naval expansion in the 1840s in the Tyler administration. And then uh, when um, uh, after the death of Abel Upshur uh, aboard the USS Princeton, Tyler killed in a kind of a horrible cannon accident. Uh, Tyler n- nominates Calhoun as secretary of state and Calhoun becomes an extraordinarily aggressive I would say absolutely uh, nationalist figure uh, in his desire to bring in the slaveholding Republic of Texas and adjoin it to the United States. He's not doing this simply to kind of strengthen the South and its conflict with the North. I, I won't say that that had nothing to do with his uh, with, with with his imagination, but he's doing it as the U.S. Secretary of State. And I think his ultimate vision is that the South and and, and the West collectively have have been running this nation to to a considerable extent and must continue to run uh, the United States government. And the larger look at Calhoun's career as Secretary of State beyond even the annexation of Texas in which he's, you know, consistently making constitutional shortcuts in order to ensure that Texas gets into the union on a number of levels. Uh, but he's also a extremely internationally sent, uh, uh, focused propagandist for slavery uh, and, and in, in some sense, white supremacy across the hemisphere. He writes this letter to the U.S. representative in, in Paris, uh, William King of Alabama, uh, talking about Britain's war on slavery across the Americas and how it threatened to overturn the kind of racial order uh, in places like Brazil or in elsewhere in South America and and undermine uh, the basis of, of economic activity across the hemisphere, prevent Brazil or Cuba from exporting their slave-produced goods and kind of torpedo not just the, the the Latin American nations, but potentially the whole transatlantic economy, which would affect, uh, you know, the French and Europe more broadly. And uh, in this sense, you know, Calhoun is, is again, he's not speaking as a Southerner. He's speaking as a as a officer of the United States government uh, defending slavery uh, and defending the system of slavery as it's practiced all across the hemisphere on the basis of uh, on racial, uh, a kind of a iron law of, of, of racial capacity and uh, the necessity of bound labor for economic coercion. I mean, sorry, for economic productivity. Um, and in this sense, he's a much more kind of a powerful, I would say, confident international vision than we get uh, when we think about him just barricaded in a parlor in South Carolina somewhere complaining about, uh, you know, how the South is doomed. Uh, I think both sides of Calhoun are important and real, but I think we've really neglected that uh, confident international side. Uh, and I think that this book definitely seeks to bring that out. In contrast to Calhoun, Andrew Jackson lurks in the background of this Southern Empire, especially in the beginning of the book. So I'm curious, what role does Jackson play in this foreign policy saga? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. He's not. I mean, in some sense, the book really uh, gets going in the in the in the early eighteen forties with the administration of John Tyler, in which people like Upshur and Calhoun and Tyler himself, other sort of pro slavery figures, play a really powerful role in accelerating you know the foreign policy of slavery. But Jackson is important, I think, in a couple ways. First, he's a crucial champion of Texas annexation in the early 1840s and in domestic politics. And when he comes out and writes a letter in support of of annexing Texas in in 1843 uh, and then continues to support it in 44, uh, it really makes a has an important impact on Democratic Party politics, the nomination of James K. Polk, the ultimate annexation of Texas. And he does it, uh, the way that Jackson endorses Texas annexation is really grounded in this kind of pro-slavery foreign policy uh, vision. Uh, It's very consistent with it. Uh, In fact, you could, I think you could say that Jackson himself help formulate it to some extent. The the fundamental grounds are the, you know, the opposition, the fear of, of British abolition stirring up a potential sort of race war in, in Texas that could spread across the South and endanger American slavery. He's always paranoid about these alliances between you know, potentially uh, slaves in, in in Texas or in the South with Native Americans, uh, Mexicans, even uh, British uh, West Indian, Black West Indian troops who could potentially land in the South. So a lot in a lot of the in a lot of his sort of fears and uh, nightmares, Jackson, you know, speaks for uh, in a, in a, with with, a, with great authority uh, nationally and also over Southern politicians in the Democratic Party. Uh, he speaks uh, to to some of the core concerns that these pro-slavery uh, foreign policy actors ha- held. And in a larger sense, I think um, Jackson. I think you could say that Jackson serves as a kind of uh, pro-slavery nationalist model for Southern leaders in Washington, you know, even after he's he's uh, gone, uh, even after he dies in in the mid 1840s. Uh, I think I write somewhere that uh, Jefferson Davis, in a sense, fused the kind of aggressive, insistent, uh, you know, defense of slavery that characterized John C. Calhoun's politics. Uh, Jackson was often sometimes, uh, you know, uh, less rhetorically focused on slavery with a kind of national with a kind of open nationalist embrace of national uh nationalist politics that uh that jackson had and i think in a larger sense a lot of southern politicians in the 40s and 50s were um they weren't just the children of calhoun as the kind of bitter defensive sectionalists they were the children of calhoun and jackson together uh they were both uh really focused on slavery and um uh, and and you know preserving southern rights and southern prerogatives in domestic politics, but they were also nationally confident uh, and internationally ambitious. And um, and I, they, I think, uh, in, in, from my perspective, a lot of these, especially these Southern Democrats, uh, so not just somebody like Jefferson Davis, but somebody like you know John Slidell of Louisiana, who's a kind of important power broker senator, or uh, some of the Southern Democrats in Virginia, like Robert Hunter. You know, uh, there wasn't a tension between uh, Jackson's nationalism and Calhoun's sectionalism. Uh, they they drew on both those legacies. One of the things I found really interesting, if not funny at times, was that these slaveholding white supremacist power holders in the South find themselves trying to court alliances with unexpected figures and nations. Can you talk more about this to my listeners, who exactly they're trying to court? Well, I mean, principally, their 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 understanding of, of, of foreign 
foreign policy, world politics really hinges, at least in, in my reading, on the status of slavery. Uh, so in, in various countries and the kind of larger balance of power between slavery and abolition, this kind of great 19th century struggle. So occasionally I kind of, you know, resort to Cold War metaphors when I talk about this in the book. And some people don't like that as much. Some people don't think it's, you know, the domino theory is really appropriate here. But uh, if you read the correspondence of somebody like Duff Green, who's this kind of all uh, jack of pro-slavery, jack of all trades, who, you know, spends time in in France, Belgium, uh, London, he goes down to Mexico at some point. He's in correspondence with Tyler and Calhoun and all of these Southerners across this period. You know, they really do talk about if Brazil fall, if Cuba falls, then Brazil will fall. If Brazil falls, then, you know, slavery will be isolated. It, it is a sort of domino theory. So in order to prop up these dominoes, uh, uh, you know, certainly the two most important in the Western Hemisphere, well, the three most important in the Western Hemisphere in the early 1840s, when this kind of Anglo-American tension about slavery, this sort of ideological and strategic Cold War is is maybe at its height, uh, are uh, the Spanish colony of Cuba. So that involves Spain, which and uh, the Empire of Brazil and the Republic of Texas. And in, in that sense, slaveholding diplomats who are in all those places, uh, and that includes Madrid as well as Havana, are actively engaged in kind of building, bo forging bonds with the sort of authorities and uh, in each of these places. Of course, it's, it's tricky and it's complicated because in Cuba, there's also concurrent desires to annex Cuba that puts Southerners in tension with the Spanish authorities sometimes. Uh, and same thing with Texas in a certain sense. Um, but I think Fundamentally, none of those annexation plans really get anywhere if they threat if they're threatening to undermine the security of slavery itself. Those annexations were only interested interesting to these Southerners if they can actually strengthen slavery, not if they jeopardize it. Uh, and in some sense, in 1853-54, you see important slaveholders like Jefferson Davis pull away from an aggressive uh, annexation plan because they are worried that uh, it would actually produce a uh, filibuster invasion, might produce uh, a slave revolt in Cuba that would ruin. Cuban slavery. So there's a kind of delicate dance between these American slaveholders and kind of slaveholders abroad. Uh, some of the most interesting, you know, uh, the most interesting case in some sense, I think, is Brazil, because it's it's a little bit off the radar in a lot of our normal conversations about American foreign policy. And it's it's a case where annexation is not really on the agenda. Uh, and yet the American diplomats in Brazil are consistently interested in the status of Brazilian slavery, in British efforts to undermine uh, or put that slavery or put pressure on the Brazilian and you really see uh, the, 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 in a sense, it's the kind of test case that proves that pro-slavery internationalism is a thing and that these Southerners are always trying to make, you know, um, sort of do diplomatic outreach to the Brazilian court on the basis of this shared commitment to slavery. So why do slaveholders eventually lose their faith in the federal government to protect their interests on the national stage? on the international stage, rather. What changes? Yeah, there's a, well, there's a long answer and a short answer. So I'll do a short answer of the long, uh, of the long answer, and then uh, the short answer is uh, pretty straightforward. I mean, the first thing that changes is the, the, the I, I think, the long sort of rise of anti-slavery politics over the course of the 19th century that for a, a long time is successfully contained uh, after the Missouri crisis within the uh, two-party system. And, you know, both Whigs and Democrats in the 1820s, 1830s, uh, into the 1840s, uh, you know, basically make 
um, the what they would call the agitation of slavery uh, out of bounds in national politics. You know, now there are a few uh, exceptional figures like John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts and so on who who struggle to put slavery on the agenda. But in effect, the leadership of both uh, of both national parties competing for votes. Um, you know, uh, all across the nation in a way, in a sense that, you know, the second party system in a lot of ways is much more truly national than our our system today. You know, uh, a few exceptions aside, you know, Democrats don't really today compete in places like Mississippi or they, they don't try to. I mean, whether they should or not is another question. But whereas, you know, in the second party system, these both wigs of Democrats were competing everywhere. And that meant putting abolition and uh, even anti-slavery politics on the margins. And that really, it's only after, it's only into the late 1840s after the, the, the war with Mexico and the kind of battles of the Wilmot Proviso and the future of slavery in those territories that anti-slavery politics begins to emerge again as a, as a really powerful force. And it emerges that actually a lot of people in the North really have kind of always hated slavery or at least not liked it very much. And uh, if it gets put on the political agenda, they'll respond in an anti-slavery way. And so some ways, the 1850s is a story of these parties trying to hold on to this order amid this surge of anti-slavery sentiment from below. And so short answer, what changes is the Republican Party in uh, the mid 1850s, which, uh, you know, by 1856, uh, Republicans are in control in effect of the of the lower house of Congress. And that really wreaks havoc that begins to wreak havoc with Southern, this, this sort of pro-slavery vice grip on the federal government itself. I mean, they still have the executive branch, they still have the Senate, but I think after 56, uh, a lot of them start to see the writing on the wall because now you have, you know, if John C. Fremont wins the uh, overwhelmingly, in some sense, wins the upper north, uh, a majority in the free states. And suddenly the north is united behind a party whose number one uh, plank is opposition to the extension of slavery and, and for many of its leaders, opposition to slavery, period, uh, which is a new thing in American politics and really changes uh, the balance of power domestically and puts the South in the, on the defensive in a real way rather than just a rhetorical way uh, for the first time. And so ultimately, then, the shortest answer is what actually changes in 1860 is Abraham Lincoln's elected. You have an anti-slavery president who's, you know, again, the, the reason for his party's existence, for Lincoln's existence in, on the national stage is opposition to the slave power. Uh, that is opposition to this pro-slavery foreign policy is a huge part of it. And at that point, without the executive branch, with this hostile power in par hostile party in power, uh, they're really, it, you know, the Southern faith in these institutions was never about the institutions themselves. It was about their ability to wield power through them. And when they're reduced to a kind of a rump, uh, they still have the Senate so they can block but they can't do very much uh, without the executive branch, without the lower House of Congress. They, um, uh, you know, they decide that slavery uh, and their vision for the world is both safer and, and more propitious outside the Union. Something listeners outside of the Academy may not know is that scholarship at the moment is currently questioning or re-examining the question between capitalism and slavery. And it's become a rather hot topic. Uh, listeners will recall my discussion on Roll, Jordan, Roll, that Genovese does not think slavery is a capitalistic institution. So a question, Dr. Karp, why is this relationship being re-examined right now and how is the field changing? Okay, let me take the second part of that first, because I think the first one, why now, is a, is a really interesting question that I can only you know, sort of speculate at. Uh, but 
Yeah, certainly in the last five, 10, maybe even uh, 15 years, there have been a new wave of books um, kind of emphasizing uh, there's a lot of different sort of reevaluations of slavery, uh, not just in the United States. Uh, the idea of the second slavery, in which uh, which describes the kind of period in the hemispheric history of slavery uh, from uh, after British abolition to the Amer- to in effect the the middle of the nineteenth century, where you know American cotton, Brazilian coffee, and uh, Cuban sugar exports uh, really start to dominate the world. And even after this first wave of, of abolition, slavery surges again as this as this reinvigorated, dynamic, uh, you know, no less brutal, but um, very competitive sector of the world economy that is actually providing raw materials for these industrializing economies in the North that need coffee, sugar, and, and cotton. Uh, and then, you know, within the United States, uh, you know, important books by Walter Johnson and uh, Ed Baptist and uh, Sven Beckard and, on the global scale have all kind of emphasized a lot of these same features, not just not just the kind of profitability or efficiency of slavery in a narrow economic sense, because in a lot of ways that that argument was had in the 70s. You know, and, you know, you could take different sides on it. But uh, I think the new scholarship goes deeper and stresses it's, it's real, really slavery centrality, uh, not just to the southern economy, um, but uh, to the evolution of American and global capitalism itself. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I think uh, there's uh, there there's pushback to a lot of the uh, the sort of maybe the more aggressive claims uh, on behalf of, of slavery's importance in this world economy. I think you're, you've seen economic historians kind of uh, quibble with, you know, Sven Beckert's idea that it was cotton rather than, say, coal that really drove 19th century uh, global economic growth. You've, you've had other economic historians push back against Baptist's argument about the importance, specific importance of torture in uh, driving the productivity of slavery. But in general, I think it's true that we're a long way from Genovese's um, model of how uh, slavery worked uh, as a political economy. And the question why now is an interesting one. I mean, I, it, there's a really interesting essay that I'd, as it's uh, a little bit theoretical, but I'd, I'd recommend it to listeners by uh, Gabe Winant, who's actually a, a grad student at Yale, but he wrote a pretty brilliant essay, I think, in the um, in N plus one, uh, reviewing Walter Johnson's book when it came out. And he kind of does this sort of review of the historiography since Genovese and argues that trying to explain why this field has changed in the present, his, his, his take is that if Genovese writing in the 1960s, and 1970s was fundamentally concerned with the question to explaining why slaves in effect didn't revolt, how slaves could be um, kind of, in a sense, accommodate to the order, uh, the political order of slavery itself. This question being informed by Genovese as a kind of revolutionary communist critique of the working classes of Europe and the United States and how they kind of became accommodated to capitalism rather than revolting. This is very simplistic, but still. Uh, and it, it, the questions that, you know, the Italian thinker, you know, Antonio Gramsci uh, found really compelling uh, and, you know, Genovese strongly influenced by Gramsci thinking about, you know, how, you know, re- there can be resistance within accommodation and accommodation with resistance and so on. The question now in our moment, in our political moment, our century is very different. It's not why isn't revolt on the cards? Revolt seems sort of unimaginable, less imaginable than ever. And so for somebody like Walter Johnson, uh, when it points out slavery is the kind of, um, in a sense, a perfect metaphor for the way the, the global economy seems to work now. 
um, the kind of the rise of the carceral state, the kind of uh, the you know increasing disparities between the top and the bottom, uh, and the sort of the destruction of unions and all sorts of even forms of like defensive res- working class resistance. And the question isn't why didn't slaves revolt, but how slaves were muscled into this like brutally exploitative system. Uh, and I think that does inform a lot of this slavery and capitalism uh, literature. I think a lot of those contemporary political uh, questions, and it's less it's less Gramsci uh, and Genovese that are that are prompting uh, the responses, and more the kind of uh, contemporary uh, how the contemporary global economy looks to a lot of these scholars. Something we talk about in graduate school a lot is the subject of focus and the people we're talking about in crafting our syllabi and the people that often get left out of American history classes or historically have been left out, such as uh, the black enslaved, women, Native Americans, and those on the margins of society. And your book focuses, as the subtitle says, slaveholders. And most of these people in your book are senators and governors and presidents, you know, people at the top of society. So a question I have for you as a professional academic is, in your opinion, how does one go about keeping in balance when studying something like slaveholders and foreign policy, bringing in those people from the margin, yet devoting yourself to the subject that you're devoted to? Yeah, it's a... That's a really good question. And actually, it takes me back to grad school myself, for sure, because I had a lot of the same concerns when I sort of began uh, this project. And, you know, I talked about how I was interested in text annexation and so on, which involved a lot of, you know, uh, senators, governors, presidents, diplomats, and so on. Uh, and I wasn't sure where it was going to take me. And I had a lot of um, intellectual concerns, political concerns, and, you know, uh, even career concerns with, oh, am I studying this musty old diplomatic history um, that a it only concerns elites b it's been done c you know no it's it's far out of fashion um but in, in a, fu- a funny thing happened you know on the way to the the forum by the time i was done uh you know transnational history and the kind of new history of slavery uh had 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 made my sort of work appear on the cutting edge of fashion in a lot of ways and and what was old was new again and i think a lot of other historians had made similar journeys in this period um uh which in some ways is an argument for not thinking too hard about uh, the kind of uh, imperatives of a kind of a given moment in the field when you're, say, starting out in grad school, because a lot can change in, uh, you know, grad school takes a long time and book projects take a long time and a lot can change uh, from when you conceive of a project to when you complete a project. Um, and uh, and you can you can get in trouble, actually, uh, trying to follow a wave that may have crashed, uh, you know, a few years before you tried to ride it. But uh, more, more, more broadly, I mean, I think absolutely work on sort of, you know, groups of, of historical actors traditionally neglected uh, by historians, traditionally left out of the archives is absolutely vital. And uh, my work doesn't my work, I think I only feel comfortable that my work can exist with the kind of, in some sense, the confidence in the labor of the thousands of other historians who I think since the 1980s have been making, you know, really important and bold efforts to, you know, recover a lot of these, uh, these historical actors from, you know, the condescension of, 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 of the past and, and bring, uh, you know, working class people, black, Native American uh, women to the fore and to the front and center of the the narrative of U.S. history, and I think in the academy at least, 
I think they, they kind of are. Now, that's, that, that doesn't mean that um, that's where the country is or that's where um, uh, how they have a, the sort of the national historical narrative fits in the kind of from the perspective of the general public, popular culture, et cetera, et cetera. There's still a lot of work to do. But I think within the academy, I do feel confident that, that, that a kind of balance has been achieved. And in that sense, there is an opening also to study uh, elites, too, because in some sense, a lot of the scholarship I found on this Texas question was was very old, you know, and some of those old books are, you know, quite good. You know, there's a really good book on British interests in Texas in, you know, published by Ephraim D. Adams in 1910. It's really old. But a lot of, you know, a lot has changed since 1910. And uh, there's a there is a, a, I think, not just a, a value, but in some sense, a need to revisit some of these older questions and involving familiar actors from a, a new perspective. I think we need it all. I think we need uh, histories of slavery from the perspective of slaves uh, and from the perspective of slaveholders and from the perspective of senators, from the perspective of abolitionists, everybody. And I think um, for me, just why I was interested in these figures, uh, you know, particularly, uh, it wasn't so much, uh, I, 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 I think they matter because I'm, for to me, because I, I, I'm interested in power. Uh, I do think even if Genovese in some sense uh, no longer commands the field in the study of Southern slavery, I think his I, I, his aphorism of that history is the story of who rides whom and how is something that I do take with me. And not every historian has to be a historian of power in that in that kind of almost crude sense. Um, but I think power absolutely matters. And I think um, in shaping the trajectories of all sorts of people it doesn't mean we only need to study those who have the most kind of obvious those figures matter and uh, need to be part of the story and shouldn't be left to um, the work of historians that are, you know, have been dead for 50 years. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm glad to hear that you're doing work on interested in a project on Andrew Jackson. And uh, I think uh, all of these figures uh, deserve attention. Say, so you sound like a great champion of interdepartmental and true interdisciplinary work. And uh, I, I really appreciate your comment that uh, you're you're confident in your work because you're confident in your in your colleagues. I think that's a great way of looking at it. So if I can ask you, what's next for you, Dr. Karp? Uh, what's your next project, if I'm allowed to ask? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am trying to write uh, a book on the rise of the Republican Party in the 1850s. That that, that, that story that I we sort of teased out uh, when you asked me what changed and uh, that the the in a way it's uh, going to be a long uh, version of that short answer because I think the book is going to focus specifically on the 1850s, not on the deeper history of anti-slavery. But, um, you know, from the perspective of these slaveholders, you know, when you read their speeches in Congress or their newspapers or their correspondence, the arrival of the Republicans on the scene was an absolute meteor, you know, crashing into uh, the planet that that they were inhabiting. And uh, it fundamentally shook up American politics to have this anti-slavery party. It was capable of winning mass support, not just, a, you know, a very small niche. In 1852, right, the Free Soil, Free Democratic Party won about 5% of the vote. You know, maybe, you know, won, you know, 10% of the vote in a few northern states, uh, but still very, very much on the margins. And then in 1856, Fremont uh, and the Republicans sweep in and win overwhelming majorities in the upper north, win, uh, win in almost every northern state. And it's a political revolution, I think, um, that... Uh, I'm not sure 
probably the most important political revolution in America. And I'm not sure that it's always th- that story is always told that way. I mean, we have a lot of history emphasizing Lincoln as a moderate, emphasizing the Republicans as a kind of uh, compromise position from more radical abolitionists. Um, and I think that those points of view might be true in a narrow sense, but they are missing the forest for the trees in terms of how this 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 really was a revolutionary development for American politics. And it was, the, in some sense, it was the Republicans, the arrival of anti-slavery, not uh, these pro-slavery guys who really changed things in the 1850s. Of course, the pro-slavery uh, actors were evolving and and changing, but they were largely confident in that history was on their side, as I've argued in this book. And I think it took the kind of struggle, it took a sustained political struggle on the part of anti-slavery actors to overturn that. So I want to dig a little deeper and figure out how exactly that happened and what the Republicans sort of really stood for uh, in, in regard to slavery. Now, it's my ritual to end the Age of Jackson podcast with my favorite quote from James Baldwin, that American history is longer larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. As you're a student and teacher of history, what advice would you give to students and teachers about America's historical beauty and its historical terror? Yeah, I love that quote. Um, I think I think they're, they're, there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of terror to go around. I mean, it's uh, to to sort of condense it in a in a shorter and maybe a slightly more optimistic aphorism you know you know frederick Douglass's great line in the 1850s you know very relevant to the struggle you know if there's no struggle there's no process there's no progress and i think both of those that in a sense that's a Douglass's perspective is actually kind of more whiggish and optimistic kind of assuming that there is such a thing as progress um but i think uh for me to understand beauty and terror i think you have to understand uh the belief in progress and uh, the struggle towards that progress. So I think that's kind of how I approach these big questions in American history is different groups of actors struggling for different ideas of what progress means. And, um, and in terms of advice, I think um, I'm going to stick with what I said earlier about, um, you know, people about my own experiences with a, with, with, uh, st- with the study of history, um, you know, however you want to pursue uh, your interest in that American beauty and American terror, American struggles and American progress. I, I think there's a certain amount of um, self-direction in the study of history that you have to sort of follow your own vision of this. And, and you know, you want to read everything and be aware of everything, but you need to follow your own uh, uh, your own tune. And uh, there's room for a lot of different kind of work and uh, we need it all. So go do it. Dr. Cup, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. This was great. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.